Welcome again to the online ministries at uh, South Sub Church. I'm so glad that you have uh, joined us today. We are finishing our series on the gospel. I pray that this has been a, um, a blessing to you. Uh, there's some method to my madness as we're thinking through this as a, as a congregation, as a people of God, as we continue to navigate the pandemic um, and, and, and all of the challenges that that throws up. For the past uh, six weeks, today seven weeks, we've been looking at the gospel, what it is. That is, the gospel is Christ, it is what He has done, and it is how His merits are ours through faith and faith alone. We are justified not by our works, but solely and completely by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Um, as we transition now, as we be, uh, finish up this series... Uh, next week, uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, a vocation uh, in celebration and observance of Labor Day. And then we're going into our next series, Stuck in the Suburbs, and looking at the mission field, some of the challenges that are unique to the suburbs across the United States of America. Uh, you won't want to miss that. I'm excited uh, to talk about the burbs, if you will. If you have your Bibles or your tablet or your smartphone or however you read God's Word, I'm going to be preaching today from Ephesians chapter 6. So remember last week we began uh, the section of Ephesians, uh, which bridges actually the last part of chapter 5 and now into the first part of chapter 6. You know, unfortunately in our minds when we think about chapters, chapters tend to end and begin new thoughts. Uh, now remember, when the chapters and verses that are in our Bible, they weren't put there by the writers or by Paul. Uh, they were added later. They're not the invention of the authors. And, and really, the function of chapters and verses uh, essentially help it uh, be easier uh, as we reference, find, and discuss certain points uh, throughout God's Word. So chapter 6, verses 1 through 9 of Ephesians, really is a continuation of chapter 5, verses 21 through 33, which, of course, as we said last week, is all framed under the initial heading of verse 21 of chapter 5, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Look at chapter 6, verse 1 with me. Children, obey your parents, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. God's holy and perfect word. I'm not done with it, though, because we're going to keep referencing back with it, and we're going to talk a little bit more about how God's word is apply to our life. The first point that I want to share with you this morning is, is that I think children are God's vote of confidence in the human race. Children are God's vote of confidence in the human race. Every time a child is born, I say, ah, God's giving us another shot. I've been a father now for 12 years. My oldest is 12 years old. So what I'd like to do is I want to tell you everything I know about what it means to raise children so that they will be successful uh, perfect, well-adjusted, happy adults. Are you ready? Here goes. And that's about it. <laughs> well, um, we, we probably just need to pray, don't we? We need to pray and just go home. Well, no, no. Seriously, 
Although I know that many of you have had significantly more experience at raising children than I have, in the 12 years that I've been a dad, as I have sought to read, study, and apply God's Word to my life, I want to state some obvious points to begin our time together. Number one, you certainly are not alone if you feel like a failure at being a parent every day. (laughs) I know I do. Shauna, my wife, does. The second thing I want to say to you is I know that we're not to live in a spirit of fear. The Bible tells us not to do that. But the cultural trends, the division that's in our nation, the news of headlines of school shootings, attempted abductions of children, which was recently in the news here in Denver, child and teen human trafficking, and you know what I mean when I say that. All of those things terrify me. They cause rage to build up in me. Number three, there was a day that even though we may argue whether or not the United States was a Christian culture, the truth is is that the culture of our nation did, to a great extent, teach the same morality, the same way of life that was at least consistent with Christianity, if not the Judeo-Christian ethics. I would say that uh, it's fair to say that Judeo-Christian ethics prevailed in our culture and days gone by. It does not anymore. I was recently asked about my thoughts on the explosion of private and homeschooling, uh, classical and Christian schools over the last 25 years. Well, about 75 to 100 years ago, there were two kinds of schools in our country. There were Roman Catholic schools, and there were public schools. Because throughout most of our nation, public schools were the same thing as Protestant schools. They taught the same ways of living life together, mutual respect, care for your neighbor, respect and honor for those in authority. And that's not the case anymore. And number four, for my most popular opinion, that's a warning, by the way, our culture pays a lot of lip service to being child-centered, that we love and we value children, I do not believe that that is true. It was bad enough when I was a kid when kids were expected to be seen and not heard. Today, we don't even want to see them. We shuffle them off away from the rest of us so they don't disturb us, so someone else can take care of them. And frankly, there are way too many institutions, from housing and hotels to car manufacturers, from restaurants to public transportation, that penalize families that have more than three kids. I've looked this up. Our culture makes its stuff and plans its infrastructure for families with no more than three children. And then when families do have more children, those families are judged. Meanwhile, birth rates are plummeting. 183 out of 195 countries are now below the replacement level of 2.1 children per family. Now, a lot of people celebrate this as a win for the planet. Reduced carbon emissions, less deforestation. But there's another side of that coin as well. Research has shown that at the current trends of our birth rates, by the year 2100, we will have a planet with twice as many senior citizens as there are young people. 
And remember, it's young people, working people, who provide things like resources for health care, doctors, nurses, the tax money, food supplies, stocking shelves, trucking food, and housing, building, caring for those who are in senior housing in our communities. Now, now to understand that, today there are four times more younger people than there are senior citizens. And by the 2100, there will be twice as many senior citizens as there are younger people. With our current birth rates, it is projected that by the year 20, uh, by the year 2200, 2200, countries will be competing for immigrants as migration will be the only way to keep industry powers like the United States, China, and Europe running. As a matter of fact, one study by the University of uh, College at London has projected that if current levels of having babies continues its gradual decline, the human race will be near extinction levels by the year 2300. The University of Oxford predicts that in order to reverse this trend, in order to, to just stabilize it, assuming infant mortality rates will increase as the population shrinks, Think about that for a second. Women in developed nations like Europe, like the United States, will need to average three to six children. Developing nations will need twice that number. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you see a reversal in public attitudes over the next 80 years where we will celebrate families having six or more children? I don't think so. Uh, maybe in 2085, suddenly everybody will wake up and realize the ultimate end of the human race, and they'll begin a campaign, but by then it will be too late. And the number one reason that most couples say that they don't want children is financial. In 1950, a family of five could live on one income. In 2017, a family of three required two incomes to survive. Now, now, maybe I'm grinding my own axe here. I don't know. But I would say this, that that is where our culture is with regard to children. And frankly, unfortunately, too many churches have also adopted those same prevailing opinions the same prevailing opinions of the world's culture into our own houses of worship, our own communities of faith. I still think children are God's vote of confidence in the human race. The second point that I want to share with you as we get into what Paul is saying here, point two, children, obey your parents, Paul says. Now here the word obey is a real word, and it's different than the word we translated submit earlier in this uh, 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 book of Ephesians. If you missed that, it's in last week's uh, uh, message. would encourage you to go and look at that. This word here, obey, is not submission. It is obedience. But it's a word that really carries a meaning of listen. You've said that to your children when they won't listen to you you've said listen to me the same kind of word that paul is saying here obey your parents you, you could interpret this as children listen and learn from your parents 
Now, this assumes that parents are, or at least want, to teach their children. Now, as, as many of you probably know, our family homeschools our children. We use the same curriculum and lesson plans that are used by the Highlands Latin Classical School System, which is across uh, our nation. It's hard work. Even more so now with a one-year exploring uh, the home classroom as Shauna tries to teach the other three. Now, homeschool families choose that as an option for a whole host of reasons that are vastly different, and it's always interesting to see how they all get lumped into one group. That couldn't be further from the truth. One of my best friends is a guy named Pastor Jeff Gill. He's uh, very active with public schools uh, back in Ohio where he lives because he also works as a court mediator for at-risk children or uh, at-risk families. He's a huge proponent of public education, as am I. But one of his favorite phrases is this. Some families send their kids to private schools, parochial or religious schools, and public schools. But every family homeschools. I think that's pretty insightful. You ask any public school educator that you know, and I bet you they'll tell you that it is not their job to teach our children things like manners and respect and morality. I mean, they'll cover reading and algebra and literature and history. And these days, even science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. But the irony of where our culture has landed is that during the Protestant Reformation, back in the 14 and 1500s, the Roman Catholic Church had so de-emphasized families that Martin Luther, one of the Protestant reformers, poured his mind and his effort into what became known as the doctrine of vocation. Now, we're going to talk more about that next week at our Labor Day uh, service. But Luther taught that there were three estates of human life and existence that are instituted by God. The office of pastor, the civil government, and marriage. It's where we get the phrase, the estate of marriage. You've probably heard that. It's used in, 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 in legal situations, in history books. It comes from Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation. The estate of marriage, or as it's sometimes called matrimony, was, well, exactly what its name implies. Matrimony, matri, means to make one a mother. By that, Luther meant that the purpose of marriage was to raise and nurture children. And not just your biological children, not just the children that you have, but all of us who are married, our call, even for couples who don't have their own children, the Reformers encouraged all of us married folk to pour our lives into the raising, the education, and the catechizing of children. Well, now, catechize, that, that's a new word, isn't it? One of those fancy words that uh, was used quite frequently hundreds of years ago, but it's one of those words we don't use anymore. It, it just basically means teaching the children or teaching others the faith. As a church, we catechize. We teach the faith. We catechize in South Sub Kids. We catechize in South Sub Youth. We catechize in Awana. We catechize in, in, our, in our life groups, in our small groups, in our groups and classes. But the bulk of teaching the faith was the call 
or the vocation of the parents. And specifically, here we go, the fathers. As I was uh, coming to the church today, I was talking with a friend of mine, and I said, here I am preaching Paul in Ephesians, and here again Paul's picking on the men. Sometimes Paul gets a bad rap for picking on women, but at least so far in the last couple of weeks, he's been hammering us guys more. Paul assumes that parents are, quote, teaching their children the faith. He just assumes that's a normal way of living, which is why Paul addresses the children here. And he says to the children, obey or listen or learn from your parents. Paul says in verse 1 that this is right. This is the proper order of things. And he goes on, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise which is true, that it may go well with you and that you live long in the land. When Paul wrote this, he was probably telling young people, hey, it's important that you learn about the faith. You need to learn about Jesus, and you've got to love God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul. Now, I don't know if Paul would write these same things today if he were writing a letter to the church at Littleton or Centennial, Maybe what Paul would say today is, hey, parents, please teach your children about Jesus. Please, parents, teach your children about Jesus. Now, I'm not beating up on you. Most parents are terrified with the challenge to teach our children. And, and probably much of the blame for parents' sense of ill-preparedness to teach their children lies at the feet of the church that's right it's our fault i think it's our fault for two reasons number one over the past hundred years the church has done an abysmal job at teaching the faith most of our folks don't know what they believe or why they believe it as a matter of fact e christian kopf who's a professor at the university of colorado uh, boulder campus actually wrote a book, The Devil Knows Latin. And in that book, he talks about 100 years ago, pastors were expected to spend the bulk of their time teaching and preaching the Bible. They would have known ancient history. They would have been able to read Greek and Hebrew and Latin. Today, pastors are expected to be experts in crisis counseling. We're called upon to navigate the world of feelings. And we're expected to preach sermons of encouragement. Not anything wrong with that, I guess. A hundred years ago, pastors served steak and baked potato at least three times a week. And today we hand out cake and ice cream once a week. And folks, nationally, are coming with their spoon in hand about once every seven Sundays. That's not your fault. It's our fault. Because being popular, being well-liked, having big churches that could afford lots of programming was more important than our call to equip you to be the priesthood of all believers. The second reason I think that's true is, is we also lied 
to parents over the past 25 to 50 years. We told them that, hey, if you drop your kids off for Sunday school and youth group for about an hour or so a week, we can return to you perfectly formed little Christians who will make their beds, never swear, and live moral lives. That was the worst thing we ever did. We can't compete with the world that invades your children's mind through phones, through tablets, through TikTok or whatever. Did you know that the average age that kids are now exposed to pornography is 11 years old? About 65% of teen boys and 20% of teen girls are already addicted to pornography. We need to repent. We repent of those grave and serious errors. But third, parents, discipline and instruct your children. The truth is, is we need each other. A recent article suggested that the average parent seems to think that they don't have any authority over their children and that if their children say no to them, that there's nothing that they can do about it. That the way to raise a child is to let them have their own way and do what they want all the time. Parents are also concerned about how if they discipline their children and their child complains to authorities at school or wherever, they might be risking legal action themselves. So parents have backed away from strict discipline. As difficult as it is for us to be completely consistent with it all the time, I know that. We fathers and mothers need to demonstrate to our children that catechizing ourselves that teaching ourselves the faith, that being taught the faith is still important to us, and that we truly care about continuing to learn and study God's Word whenever we can. We, we really need our families to return to a dedicated time every day for family prayer and teaching. It's got to happen. Our family has evening worship together almost every night. In our evening worship, we say the Lord's Prayer. We, we recite the Apostles' Creed. We'll talk about that some other time for those of you who might have raised an eyebrow, but we do. We read a psalm. We read Scripture. Their mother talks to them about why that Scripture is important, and then I teach them, and we recite together things like the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, what each of those petitions mean, what baptism is, what the Lord's Supper is, and the importance of prayer and confession and how Christ has come to forgive us through the cross. They each, our children, offer a prayer of their own. And then I close the service with a prayer uh, for the whole family. And then my children line up in front of me and I bless each of them by placing my hands on their heads and saying, I bless you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I embrace them, I kiss them, I hug them. You might be thinking, yeah, but you're the pastor. You're supposed to do that sort of thing. The Protestant reformers were very intentional that the spiritual leaders of the household were the parents, not the pastors. You are the spiritual leader of your household. 
There are resources. I've got resources. I'd be glad to share them with you. Our discipleship team, uh, Miss Debbie, Miss Becky, Pastor Joe, any of us would be glad to talk to you, encourage you, and help you as you seek to develop your spiritual life, not only with yourself or with your spouse, but with your family. Look, I didn't share any of that with you to brag. I'll be honest. Some nights, all of us are tired, and we just want to get through it as quickly as possible. Other nights, we might just say some prayers, and we do the blessing and go to bed. And still other nights, and it tends to happen more with our older kids than our younger kids, they act like we're torturing them when we ask them to read that evening selection from the Bible. But the habit, the discipline, it gives order to our life. Even if we don't feel like it, we know that we have one of the most important jobs in our children's lives, and that's to tell them about Jesus. Look, we're closing out this series in the gospel, and I know that those words and that message were probably hard for a lot of us to hear as you look at not only your own life, but those of your children and grandchildren, and for some of you, even your great-grandchildren. It's going to take work and intentionality, and it's not always going to feel good. But Paul closes out his book with these words to remind us of the seriousness of where we are. Verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil ones and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly, that you, may declare it boldly, that we may declare it boldly as we ought to speak. In the name of Christ, amen.